So I'm just curious if anyone is joining us for the first time today. Raise your hand. Anyone that wasn't with us last night or wasn't with us over at the chapel, fantastic. Well, welcome. So we are now going to begin the session exploring the impact on frontline indigenous and vulnerable communities. I am going to give a short introduction to our moderator, Dr. Arthea Nunes, and then she will be introducing each of the panelists. We have 75 minutes for this session. The flow of the conversation will include each of the panelists uh, giving some remarks. We do have one individual that we invited to be a part of this, Kathy Detnold Kijiner, which is, she is a Marshall Islander poet. And unfortunately, she couldn't be with us today, but she has shared virtually a video, a beautiful poetry video you'll see at the end of the session, and also a short video as well. Then we're going to open it up to uh, group discussion, which then will incorporate some comments from you all at that time. There will be two individual pop-up mics, and they'll be making their ways around. So just make sure you raise your hand and wait until the mic comes to you. We are audio recording this uh, session, so we'd like to be sure to include um, your words in that. So now for a quick introduction, I'm going to read this. There is a bio, though, for all of our panelists, I just want to bring to your attention from the programs. Arthea Nance is an associate professor in the Barbara George Murphy Leland School of Public Affairs at Texas Southern University, and she holds joint faculty appointments in the Department of Urban Planning and Environment, Environmental Policy and the Department of Political Science. Prior to arriving at TSU, she was assistant professor of environmental planning and hazard mitigation at the University of New Orleans and a faculty associate in the Center of Hazards Assessment, Response, and Technology. And there's still so many more wonderful words of the work that she's done, so we are happy to be partner with her. So please join me now in welcoming Dr. Nance and the panelists. Thank you. Dr. Robert Bullard, renowned scholar of environmental justice and my colleague at Texas Southern University, once said, there is no level playing field. What this means for climate change is that the distribution of costs and burdens must be understood as inequity. As humans, we are all vulnerable to climate change, and research shows a number of key vulnerabilities. risk of water shortage, risk of coastal flooding, risk of disease, and risk of forced migration. But there are additional consequences for marginalized groups, and these are often unclear and unstated. A global climate justice movement has emerged in response to this situation. This movement is coming to terms with the escalating risk that vulnerable communities face, on top of the already unacceptable baseline conditions with which they now live. The justice framework offers a critique of the effects of economic development based on minimizing negative impacts to currently vulnerable population groups. We must listen to the leaders of this movement for at least two reasons. 
this inadequate knowledge about what new and disproportionate impacts will emerge under climate change. Anything done to positively impact climate change would have to include options on a global scale, such as the green energy transition, as well as actions to mitigate threats at the local and regional scale. At every scale, the impacts take place in a context of poorly understood circumstances and conditions. Furthermore, mainstream policy responses to climate change often create secondary impacts on vulnerable communities that are never acknowledged or addressed. More understanding about the risks faced by vulnerable communities is needed. The second reason we need to listen to the people of this movement are that we have inadequate knowledge about what mitigation and adaptation options marginalized communities should pursue, or what is acceptable. Solutions must be short-term and long-term, and must address current and future injustices. Because disadvantaged communities are often left out of formal plans and programs, inequity is often reproduced during the recovery from climate change-related events. Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans and Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico are big climate-related events that make it easy to see this coming. But some grassroots organizations are finding ways to buck with the climate, and that brings me to our panel. Our first speaker is Brian Parra, who is the co-founder of Texas Environmental Justice Advocacy Service as well as the Dirty Fueled Gulf Coast Organizer of Sierra Club. He will talk about the grassroots recovery work being done in response to Hurricane Maria. Our second speaker is President Juan Sharp, the president of the Pino Indian Nation in the Pacific Northwest. She will talk about how she has led her community through multiple climate change-related initiatives. Third, we will hear from Kathy Jetnil Kajiner, poet from the Marshall Islands who has provided videos of her remarks. And our fourth panelist is Jim Wilson, a journalist and interim CEO of the Center for Public Integrity. Given his position as a journalist, I've asked him to share his observations and to perhaps shed some light on how collective action is being constrained in climate change. After some discussion among the panel members, we'll open it up for questions and then we will close from a video from poet Kathy Jetnil Kajina from the Marshall Islands. We'll start with Brian. Thank you. Good morning or afternoon, everyone. Thank you all for coming to this session. The first thing I want to do is just uh, express the gratitude. Thank you. 
concerned about what was happening on the Houston Ship Channel. Oh, it's like all of the uphill fighting. second flood that happened. This was an aerial bombardment of toxic chemicals that fell upon communities living in Manchester, Molina Park, and Pasadena, and Deer Park, all the way to Bayfront. But, as I found out, it was also spilling over to places like the Heights, and Montrose, and folks were surrounded with chemicals all over the place. This is an image
Fawn Sharp. I serve as president of the Cult Indian Nation. We're a tribal nation located on the coast of western Washington. Uh, we occupy t- over 200,000 acres, 31 miles of international border. Uh, we have just a pristine area. We have uh, the ocean, the coastline. It's the only place between Mexico and Canada where 101 doesn't exist. It's through our ancestral territories. We have mountains, rivers, lakes, uh, large old-growth trees. It's absolutely beautiful and stunning. It's the one place you can go from glacier to ocean and see no development along a river system, and it it looks as though it has for centuries, and we've uh, fought very hard to maintain it that way. I, I too, want to acknowledge the indigenous peoples that have have lived here from when time began through centuries Many of the ancestors have offered prayers, and their prayers continue to echo throughout eternity to bless this sacred area and this space. So I, too, want to take that moment and thank the organizers for the invite. Uh, I've never been to Texas before, so this is my first trip, and I'm finding that uh, a lot of people are so friendly. So thank you for the welcoming. I truly uh, enjoy being here. I, I want to talk, first of all, about the challenge I faced as a young president. I, I'm in my fifth term. I was elected in 2006, 9, 12, and 15. And in 2006, uh, it was my goal as a newly elected president to have a community-driven agenda. And when I went out to our members to find out what our priority issues are, one that quickly emerged was the decline of our prized sockeye salmon. It's called the blueback salmon. It only comes to Quinault. And for centuries, this salmon has been central to our community our identity, our diet, our celebrations, our weddings, our funerals. And in the 50s and 60s, we had millions. And the year I got elected, we only had 4,000. And so when I sought to engage, directly engage the scientists in our community about what was going on, I found a number of things. I found out the glacier that feeds the mighty Quinault had disappeared. Uh, I went on a helicopter flight to hopefully see some remnant of a glacier, but when we actually flew into the Olympic National Park in the mountains, I saw personally the glacier was completely gone. There are only three other glaciers that feed the Quinault. One has nearly disappeared, the White Glacier, and the two others have uh, since receded. I I went up back uh, this last October and could see just in the eight-year window how quickly and rapidly they're declining and and disappearing. And I declared multiple states of emergency. Uh, There was a point when I stood on our shore and I saw two miles dead marine life because of oxygen depletion on the floor of the ocean. I've had to declare four states of emergency because of ocean encroachment. We're now having to move two villages to higher ground. The place where our ancestors signed treaties with the United States is now underwater. And my great uncle tells stories of being on the coast and seeing the length of a football field. We no longer have that type of beach. The ocean is right right on our front door and has encroached to our courthouse, our schools, place where we, we've existed for since time began. And so faced with all of these challenges, uh, what, is a, what does a young president do? Uh, I thought, how am I going to solve, you know, how do you solve putting a glacier back? And our scientists said, you have to wait for the next ice age. Uh, <laughs> but short of that, what are some things that we could do? Well, I started to look into this thing back in 2006 called climate change. And I remember going to federal meetings with our trustee federal agencies, that was during the Bush administration, going to the state 
at agency meetings and other meetings, and I, I would raise the issue of climate change. The room would get quiet, and then someone would change the subject. It was almost as though it was such a large issue. There weren't, you know, meetings about it. There was very few engagement and dialogue and discussion about climate change. So in 2008, we went to uh, the Conference of Parties, COP14 in Poznan, Poland, and I thought, I'm going to have to get out of this country and go to another country to directly engage in this issue. And so Quinault has been working on climate policy for well over a decade in trying to defend and protect our sacred lands and, and areas. This last year, we took a citizen ballot to the citizens of the state of Washington. We secured 365,000 signatures. It was called I-1631, and it would have been the first carbon fee on the fossil fuel industry in the country. Now, we, the polling was quite fantastic. It was in the 60 percent, uh, very high polling when we first started. The Western States Petroleum Association spent $33 million to kill our campaign. And it was the largest campaign in Washington state history. And they spent ads attacking, you know, the, calling it a carbon tax, not a fee, threatening and bullying our citizens, saying how your rates are going to go up. And it was, it was a lot of disingenuous sort of tactics that we saw. In the post-summer season uh, market, when gas prices drop everywhere else in every state in the country, in Washington, they increased the gas prices that month, um, October, leading into the election cycle. And so we put on our best effort. Tribal nations had 13 basic principles we negotiated successfully into I-1631. We had 76 tribal nations in the Pacific Northwest who supported us by resolution. And it was an all-out aggressive effort to once and for all hold the fossil fuel industry accountable because it's very clear that carbon emissions has, is what's led to ocean acidification, the warming that's melting our glaciers. And we have a direct target. And I just figured if we can't have a governor like Governor Inslee in a state like Washington actually pass climate policy, and we can't do it in Congress, let's take it out to the citizens. And when we tried that, that failed. And so we are stepping back. We're not giving up the fight against the fossil fuel industry. And I'll be rolling out a five-point strategy to our tribal council here in the next 30 days. The first one is I think we need to bring litigation against the state and our federal trustee for failing to act to protect our trust-based resources. I think we need to commence litigation against the fossil fuel industry. It's very clear that many of these corporations have known since the 80s that climate change is real. They've adjusted their business strategy and operations, not constructing in low-lying areas. And at the same time, they've mounted public campaigns to denounce climate change. And so it's very, very sinister. So we want to sue them. And then fourth, we're going to continue to stop projects in our area. The Quinault Nation was successful in stopping three permits to export crude oil out of Grace Harbor. Three different multinational corporations that wanted to use our ancestral territories to ship Bakken crude oil out of the United States through our area on the coast of Washington and successfully stopped one, two, and all three projects. And fifth and finally, we want to build an economy. Uh, back in 2006, when I was looking at cap and trade, uh, the domestic market was only trading at 2 to $3 a metric ton because the, the U.S. is not a signatory of the Kyoto Protocol. The international market was trading at $32 a metric ton. But domestic companies couldn't access those markets because the U.S. is not a signatory to the Kyoto Protocol. We found out that notwithstanding that fact, a tribal nation could enter into that trade. So we figured out points of entries where, the United, where tribal nations can engage in international trade and commerce and attract foreign investment 
that otherwise we'd never see the shores of the United States. And so I've been doing a lot of work with the United Nations. Uh, both uh, We returned back to Poland this last year. We're engaged with the We Are Still In movement. WASI, I serve on the, the uh, leadership uh, panel of uh, 8,000 signatories who are saying, even though the United States pulled out of the Paris Accord, we are still in. And we're going to continue to fight. We're going to continue to work to hold those who are directly responsible for causing this environmental de- degradation, not only to account for what they've done thus far, but going forward to pay a price for every bit of poison that they're putting into our, our air system. So on behalf of the Quinault Nation, Siokyo, I thank you for the, the honor and the privilege to stand here and, and share with you our story. Siokyo. So I've been there a total of 11 years. Uh, I worked here uh, from 1990 to 1999. I was on a special projects desk for the Houston Chronicle, so I knew the center pretty well. And then I moved on to and I did a number. When I was at the Chronicle, I did a number of projects on environmental health, uh, toxics in the workplace, air pollution, you name it. So although I haven't been back here that frequently, issues here pretty well. I know a lot of what Brian was talking about, you know, the nosebleeds and the intolerable uh, odors that people on the, on the stems have to, have to live with. So all this is very familiar to me. Uh, is this working or not? Okay, I think I can take it anyway. So I don't have a, a real script here. I'm going to borrow a little bit from talking to you at the bar, but I do have a script. So I think as a journalist. I'm not an activist. I'm not a scientist. Um, and uh, so I thought maybe my perspective would be helpful to some of you in this room. One of the things we've learned, I've, done, I've been a journalist for 41 years, and so I have some sense of what works and what doesn't, what uh, resonates with you know, the average reader, what resonates with policymakers and, and others. So the thing that we have learned uh, as we've been covering climate change, uh, really just the last three years, is we got to tie it to public health or nobody's going to pay attention. Um, it's so abstract, it's so overwhelming that people tend to just throw up their hands and say, oh, you know, we're doomed, this is terrible, um, I'm just going to, you know, hide under the covers. That, that, that doesn't work. So what we have done, I think with some success, is use this sort of public health model we have found that um, this probably is not a surprise, and, and Brian will know this. Some of the worst uh, greenhouse gas emitters are also some of the worst toxic emitters. So you're talking about coal-fired power plants. You're talking about you know oil refineries, of course, petrochemical plants. And so what we've tried to do over the last few years is again tie this issue of climate change to public health. So. 
briefly, I'll walk you through a couple of, of pieces we've done in the last few years that I think came out reasonably well and in one case got some pretty tangible results. Um, the first example is a story that I worked on uh, two years ago, and it's, it was told out of Wilmington, California. And I don't know if any of you have ever been there. A lot of people don't know it. If, if you know Los Angeles at all, it's near the port of Los Angeles. Uh, it's next to a city called Carson, and it is a, there's a cluster of really nasty oil refineries down there. Um, so you've got four or five big oil refineries. You've got the port of Los Angeles, which is a huge polluter in its own right. And you've got a mostly immigrant community uh, living in that area, which it, it tends not to complain for obvious reasons. So I went out there and did a piece a couple of years ago um, about um, just what it's like to live in the shadow horrific refineries. We interviewed a number of people, uh, mothers of small children uh, who had severe asthma. Uh, I interviewed a critical care nurse who had seen people die on the operating table of asthma attacks. Um, and we did a video with this. We co-published it with uh, Pacific Standard Magazine, which does a lot of work with environmental stuff. And you know, I thought it came off really well. Did it do anything? Not yet, because people think of you know California as this environmentally friendly state, and, and in many ways it is. In many ways, it's a trendsetter on issues like climate change. But what I don't think people understand is how powerful the oil industry is still out there. And so, even though people complain, there's a refinery that wanted to expand in this very area. In other words, add to the already heavy burden of air pollution. Um, and so, you know, the people organized, they complained, they filed comments with the state air pollution regulator, I, I should say the regional air pollution regulator. Um, and so far, it, it hadn't done any good. I mean, they've got their attention, but, but as far as I know, the refinery expansion is going forward. So that's sort of a, you know, unfinished chapter. Um, the other story that has a, a more tangible success more of a tangible success was a story I did with uh, NPR um, eight years ago, almost eight years ago. We went to a town, a little town called Hayden, Arizona, which is uh, midway between Phoenix and Tucson. And I had gotten a tip that there was a, a horrific uh, copper smelter in this town. This is a little town of about a thousand people, at least at that time. Almost all Latino, very poor. And the company that uh, owned this smelter, I'm not sure if it's still operating, um, uh, was Asarco, which you may have heard of. Um, really bad actor. So I teamed up with an NPR correspondent, Howard Burgess, and we went out there. We did a, I did a written story. Howard did a report for the Consumer Morning Edition, I think it was considered. And suddenly the EPA got interested. They had been ignoring these people for decades. The state of Arizona regulators were utterly useless. They, they had done nothing. And just getting a little bit of media attention on this situation suddenly got the EPA's attention. And I'm happy to say that even though it took four years, they ended up hitting this facility, uh, ASARCO, facilities owners, with $100 million in uh, required pollution controls and fines. So that's a, a success story. So it doesn't always work out that way. 
even when it does work out, it can take a long time. But this is what we do. Um, just a couple of other things to add. We, we have what's called a, a partnership management. So while you may not have heard of us, you probably have heard or read some of our stories. We're a lot with NPR, Washington Post, New York Times, uh, NBC News, pretty much all the mainstream media outlets that you would, you would follow on a routine basis. And the only other thing I would add is that we found that the stories that work best for us have both a strong data element, something, you know, hard facts, combined with strong narratives. You need both. You need both. If, it's, if you have a really powerful narrative, what we call a feature story, which is great as far as it goes, but if you don't have some hard numbers behind it or some documents, you're not going to get very far. So, you know, we have a lot of work ahead of us. Um, I'd be happy to talk to anybody here after this session has ideas, that, uh, stories that we, we might want to pursue, and that's all I have to say. Let's get a hand for all of our panelists. <laughs> Starting with President Sharp and moving up the panel, I'd like each of the panelists to give on the other panelists' remarks. I think uh, both panelists, well, all three, including the video, were just uh, remarkable stories. Uh, the thing that uh, really resonated with me with the last uh, bit of remarks is, you know, the, the power of the, the industries that we're working against. Uh, you know, we've experienced putting our best practices, our best science, our traditional ecological knowledge, the be very best vision we have for what's minimally necessary to effectively combat climate change, both strategically and inclusively. And even though we mounted a statewide campaign, the strength of that industry just came in and absolutely you know, crushed the, any hope and vision we had. And, and they have no interest in our state other than profits. And so I think that's so important for people to remember. We, we have to do our, our work to plans together, to collaborate, to, no one's immune from climate change. We all have a role in, in solving it. But I think there should be stories around uh, the, the narrative about the strength of this industry and what, what it's done to communities because it's, until we can hold them accountable and, and pass laws, we can put our best plans forward. Um, but it just, you know, when I was in Poland in 2008, there was a lot of hope globally that with uh, the new president, we were, the United States was going to come to terms and enter into the accord and make hard commitments to reduce emissions. And I just remember April of 2009, President Obama sent an envoy to Bonn, Germany to basically announce to the world there's no political will in the United States. And so that level of hope and optimism, we were able to make some progress in the eight years of his presidency, but now we're on an opposite trajectory. It's in large part because of the impact and strength of, of those industries.
tried everything, you know, we've, we've, we've connected health to the environmental issue. We know that if we live within two miles of uh, the Houston ship channel, for example, uh, or, or provide east, um, we have a 56% increased rate of contracting childhood leukemia. And yet, what does that tell you? What does that tell you? If all of the facilities are expanding
just to repeat, connecting your spirituality with environmental justice. So the churches in this town have tons of money. It's huge. But the environmental community in the church is, or Methodist faith, whatever it is, basically they don't care. And that's because they need to, they still don't have climate change and environmental justice as a part of their world image. How do we make that much more? So, uh, three years ago, Pope Francis issued an encyclical, and when we went through our campaign in Washington State in 1631, we pointed to that as our effort was an example of answering the Pope's call to action. It was a global call to action, uh, calling out uh, political figures, others who have not aggressively worked to do the the necessary work to uh, regulate the industry and, and hold fossil fuel accountable to support plans, uh, support alliances, and it was it was truly a call out to the average citizen globally, and uh, I was told uh, during the campaign we received some outreach that uh, Pope Francis hosted uh, some executives from industry to the Vatican the week before the 4th of July. The week after, uh, he hosted global experts, Bill McGibbon and others who came to the Vatican to talk about what we could do strategically and globally. And uh, a person that was in that meeting called me afterwards and said that Pope Francis made a statement that we need to not only advocate for indigenous peoples, we need to learn from them and learn traditional ecological knowledge because many scientists are finding out that our traditional practices are best practices. And so uh, there was an effort to reach out to us to try to organize the, the challenge that we have indigenous peoples here in this country, we have political structure. You can go to tribal nations and see tribal councils who pass public policy. We have the National Congress of American Indians. If you go into other parts of the world, you have indigenous peoples living in Amazon and northern Siberia, and they have uh, NGOs speaking on their behalf, and there's no direct, authentic voice of those who are most impacted. And so they're looking to us. Uh, but the Pope announced he wants to convene a global summit around climate impacts with indigenous leaders. And so I think there is a movement to really try to engage others. And I think there's a, definitely a place for the church in all, all walks of faith. Because in the absence of true leadership, we've not found leadership in Olympia. We're not finding leadership in Washington, D.C. Tribal nations are stepping into that void. But I think there, there are plenty of other leaders in our communities, including the faith-based communities, that uh, those who are in positions of influence in those who are in the, in the highest ranks of churches to, you know, average everyday citizens. It's, it's going to take all of us. But I definitely see a connection between uh, the faith-based community and really understanding and recognizing that we have a moral duty to protect and defend um, our earth. I, uh, I would say that it's not my role to tell you or anyone else what your spirituality graduate from St. Thomas High School, but uh, but I went to a Lutheran school before that, and, you know, what I would say is that there are ideologies embedded in every theology, um, the idea of dominion over is a very, very deeply rooted one that I would ask folks to, to look at, um, but really ask, ask your 
maybe it does. Maybe it's just not been something that's been brought out in the seminaries, library, faith leaders, but it's there. And you can look for it. Um, and, and, and that's all I, I think I can say on that. That was a really good question. So many of these issues transcend generations. They transcend uh, place. There are some universal, basic universal values and principles that we share uh, globally. Uh, and to me, it seems like having conversations around those core values, uh, core duties. When you look at, you know, our values within indigenous communities, uh, we share a lot of values. To stop the fossil fuel industry from transporting crude oil in our ancestral territories, we we had uh, alliances with local environmental groups, with the faith-based communities, and much of our strategy and discussions were around our core values. And we uh, mounted a, a protest. We had uh, some of our traditional uh, canoers who pulled canoes uh, into the Port of Grace Harbor, and we had local groups from Seattle come out and side by side, and we had these large signs, shared value, shared waters. And I think when you take the conversation to that shared space, we all feel very deeply and passionately about uh, having a place that's beautiful, that's pristine, that's prosperous, that's not only for the, our benefit, but our children, our grandchildren, and future generations. And I think those basic values resonate with so many people, and there is that space, and so I think calling upon, you know, religious leaders to speak directly to that, that moral responsibility and the failure to act, we become complicit, and if there's something we can do that we're not doing, we become complicit in the problem, and so what are those ways that we can work and do our part, because everyone does have a place and everyone does have a role. Another question in the back?
thing I would say is what we've tried to do. So I think everyone here knows there are there are left-leaning publications in the Public Gentleman Magazine, The Nation, MSNBC, Front Page, The Huffington Post, uh, and then there are right-leaning publications which have bits of like Fox, Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, and so forth. But what we have tried to do to at least reach the middle, if not the far right, is whenever possible we try to partner with what I would call middle-of-the-road publications like USA Today, uh, which you pick up in every hotel in this country, um, or um, NBCNews.com, not MSNBC, but just regular NBCNews.com or NBC Nightly News or most other things. So I don't know what we can do about Fox News, but we can try to at least reach the middle. And sometimes that spills over a little bit, a little bit into the far right. Other than that, I, I can't help you. I, uh, I have some thoughts. Um, I think some of the speakers spoke to this a little bit in the last panel, and that's the political binaries that exist in our society and uh, this very competitive spirit that is encouraged and created in our society as a whole, you know, whether it's um, schooling, business, even spirituality, it's, it's, it's a competitive force that dominates our everyday lives. And, you know, one thing we can do is be more cooperative and less competitive um, with our brothers and sisters on, on all the other sides, because there's more than one other side. And that's hard. That means, you know, leaving your neighborhoods, um, visiting other places, um, communicating with other people, having other experiences, and being in uh, uncomfortable spaces. Um, that's, that's the reality. And uh, if we're not willing to do that, then Fox is going to fill that void. <laughs> you know, they're, they're willing to do it. that question. Uh, about uh, four years ago, uh, we 
undertook a study uh, and updated a report from the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights to Congress. It was called The Quiet Crisis. And they surveyed, the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights surveyed uh, the federal uh, funding to tribal nations, and we were off the target on every sector. And the conclusion was not one federal agency is living up to its trust responsibility. And people often wonder why, you know, tribal nations and our communities look so impoverished and we're so, uh, you know, economically and socially oppressed. Uh, we've, we've tried to raise taxes. Uh, our taxes have been challenged. Uh, and so I tell people, if you try to operate a country and meet the needs of your community and you have no taxing authority and you're forced to try to generate profits with things like casinos and others, you know, there's no wonder uh, we're in the state that we're in. It's slowly we're working our way out. But that commission report existed on the shelf with Congress for well over a decade, and not one recommendation was fulfilled or implemented. And so we, four years ago, called to update the report, and they sent out human rights observers to Standing Rock and other places to observe uh, just basic civil rights and human rights violations of tribal nations, and I, I'm hoping that we can utilize that report to leverage uh, oversight hearings within Congress to, to demonstrate concretely when uh, tribal nations are so chronically underfunded and, and displaced, people talk about you know political sovereignty and, and we've achieved that, but we're still just terribly uh, economically oppressed yet. And yet, when you look at the things that are happening, the positive things in our community in Washington State, tribal nations are leading the effort on salmon recovery, on, on uh, you know, building our ecosystems, on trying to uh, ensure that we have clean, healthy forests in eastern Washington. And so we're doing more and more with less and less. And all the reports that have come out, uh, both the climate assessment report here in the United States and the international reports, have founded and concluded that we are disproportionately impacted. We've had the least and contribute to the problems, yet we're the most impacted. When you look at uh, the science and things that we're employing, uh, we are we are the stewards. Uh, we're the leading stewards, and there's just not a lot of attention on that. And so I'm just hopeful that when the conversation shifts from you know the environmental crisis to understanding those systemic problems and challenges of inequities that. Only then can we start to build strategically the type of alliances that we need to, to fully you know, restore the, the natural world and the natural environment because without that understanding and knowledge, we're going to miss a huge part of the solutions in trying to uh, save the planet for all of us. And you know, at Quinault, we say our effort isn't just to help the Quinault Nation. We do a lot of work to benefit our entire community, our entire state, and uh, we have that sense of urgency and responsibility to everyone. Ten seconds. I think Brene Brown needs some deep sessions with the United States. There's some serious racism and colonialism at the core history of this nation. And with that has come a lot of shame and guilt and fear. And it's not being addressed. And we're not having honest conversations about the root causes of triage to symptoms and uh, and yeah so if anyone knows Brene Brown you know uh, she can sit down with the U.S. and uh, have some really really deep conversations with her thank you
Thank you very much. That's going to be our last question. Thank you. And we're going to see an inspirational poetry video now from Kathy Jetville Kajiner from the Marshall Islands. everybody. Um, it sounds, just in closing, the forces that we face, I mean, they have been expressed in this, you know, maybe not fully, but they have, we've brought up some of the forces. Jim really showed the, you know, the things that it could take with the journalists to help with that. Um, we also showed, you know, the power of organizing, the power of lawsuits, the power of stewardship. Um, many of these organizations, the grassroots organizations and the journalists, are doing these things and the powers that they have to overcome. Um, people talked about the media and how that's another power to overcome. Um, and the, I think the first question that we had really, really kind of opened up our minds that who isn't there fighting? Um, there's a missing actor there that does have to be. And I think that is the closing thought for this session. And I want to thank everyone and our panelists as well. Thank you. Most of you I know. I'm David Levin, the director of Rock Creek Chapel. And I want to add my thanks to the organizers, Tammy, um, for looking near and far for the answers.